people, I'm Juba, a London-born, Essex-raised and Berlin-based DJ and welcome to the Assurance podcast. Last year, I released Assurance, the documentary that I made about the experiences of female DJs in Nigeria. After its release, I realised that there were so many other stories to explore and I wanted to continue the conversations that were started with the first documentary. In each episode, I'm going to be talking to inspiring women DJs in the global south and delving into their own personal journeys, their local music scenes and the impact of their social context on their careers and lives. This podcast is sponsored by Adidas and Zalando as part of their Share Her Power campaign, which is all about camaraderie over competition and women empowering women. But like women, women can really create a great environment for one another. Like when we got to the last day of the workshop, it was like we like that sisterhood that you can create from spending time together with women. We had so much fun. And like in the beginning, everyone was really shy. But towards the end, you know, it was it was really sweet. Like, I think, yeah, when we get together, we know how to make, you know, we know how to create warmth with one another. And I, and I love that about, you know, gatherings of women. Hey, people, and welcome to another episode of the Assurance Podcast. I hope you guys have been enjoying the series so far, finding our chats insightful and also entertaining. And I've really enjoyed being part of this and talking to so many amazing female DJs and just creatives from across the global south. And today I'm joined by another one. I'm joined by the uber expressive and creative Zena from Egypt. So she's a Cairo-based DJ and producer whose music explores the vast space between techno and house. So Zena spent 13 years living between Canada and Cairo, slowly but steadily building communities around music. And she's now firmly back in Cairo where she's been for about seven years now. And she's set on building a place for female electronic musicians with her unfamiliar nights, which aim to cross-pollinate talent and influences from the cities that she's lived in. So, hey, Zaina, Zaina, I'm going to really try to pronounce it as Zaina, right? How are you? How are um, you? I am great. I'm happy to be with you on the podcast. And uh, yeah, your, your your pronunciation of my name is on point. Perfect. I mean, having a Nigerian name, my, my first name is Chinwe. Actually, my first name's Pamela on my passport, but I've always called myself Chinwe as my first name. Not interesting for you anyway, because my name is no, Chinwe. No, but I, I, I like, I like the, the cadence of it, Chinwe. Chinwe, it's nice, yeah, Chinwe, but I feel like my name has often been mispronounced, like Chinwe, Shinwe. Here in Germany, they call me Shingva, like, like Shingva, <laughs> so... Yeah, it's weird, though, because I don't understand how our names are that difficult to pronounce. I mean, it's really, it's literally how you spell it. I know, I know. The thing is, for me, like, I, my name's two syllables, Chinwe. I can understand accents, that's fine, because even I pronounce my name wrong in terms of my accent, because it's British and my name's Nigerian, if you get what I mean. But, like, when you just say things like Shingva, like, where's the G? Where's the V in my name? (laughs) (laughs) All right, but anyway, um, how are you doing today? How are you? I'm great. I am uh, someone who spends my day doing things related to music. So I always wake up feeling great about my, my, my days, my weeks. So the weekdays for me are usually have some sort of joy involved. So I'm doing well. Oh, that's nice. I love that. Like, you wake up surrounded by creativity. That's good. That's good. Exactly. I um. What do I do in the mornings? I don't know. I wake up. I do yoga first thing in the morning. I like doing that to get myself centered. Very very cliche. 
Um, I water my no, plants. For it's sure. cliche. <laughs> oh no, it's yeah. not. It's, it's really meditative too. Uh, actually, I, I, making small changes uh, in my morning has impacted me uh, and made the whole day feel way better. And so now, what I do the first thing in the morning, I live next to like a small coffee shop. So I realized like um, seeing people on the street and like being in the sunshine and grabbing a coffee in the first like 45 minutes of my day, it really mm. kind of gets me in a right headspace uh, as opposed to staying within the four walls of my house. And I think it's so important for the vibe of the day. That's really interesting. See, for me, yeah, I like I like structure to start the day. So with you, you like go out and you have your coffee. For me, I like to start my day with some yoga and it just like brings some structure to my day. I do my yoga. I do like a little dance. <laughs> I do a dance workout, like a two minute song that I just dance to. Wow, I love that. I always try to recommend to people like figure out your ritual and honestly, it will change your morning. Yeah, definitely. Because I think sometimes you can wake up and you're like, uh, what am I doing? Especially, I guess you yeah. work in music. Music. I do freelance stuff and I work in music too. So you have to create a structure for yourself and it's not easy to do that if you're just like, you haven't got like a, a given timetable, you know? Yes, absolutely. I used to wake up always and like being a, sl- a slave to the blah, like just wake up very confused and I don't know what to, <laughs> to how to start. But then I realized, oh wait, there's, there's some like magic in the morning. I just need to like, Definitely. you know, m- make it happen. You know what they say, the early bird catches the first worm. So if you're productive in the morning, you're all good. So Anyway, this is enough enough of us talking about how great we are in the morning. <laughs> Congratulating ourselves for being just amazingly structured this is human the beings. Of the conversation. We're so wonderful. How great are you? I'm just great. I'm so organized. Honestly, it's been three months. I've been like feeding myself all sorts of like, this is an amazing day. <laughs> you're great and everything's great i love that i mean positive (laughs) vibes you know if we're not gonna say that we're great who is ultimately so xena welcome to the chat as i said and so with all of the djs i've had on this podcast i think it's really good to get to know you as a person as a dj and i think a great way to get to know a dj is to understand their journey into this world and I do this through asking you, um, when is the first time you set your hands on a pair of decks? Tell us your story. Let's see where it started. I was actually studying law in Ireland. Ooh. Um, and I, uh, yeah, I'm a, tra- Clever. I'm a trained lawyer. Uh, yeah. Ooh, hello. And, then, um, and then I went to visit my sister in Canada and she was a little rave monkey. And uh, so she was dating a pretty popular DJ at the time. And I was mesmerized. She took me to after hours. We, we, we really partied on one particular trip in 2006. And so I left Canada and went back to the States feeling really enamored by this, uh, this, this world that I had like just caught. I had been raving before in university and stuff, but this was the way that the parties that I went to in Toronto were full on. Mm. And so I went back to my little uh, law life. I was a a young uh, lawyer amongst very, you know, um, studious folks. And so I bought a pair of decks. I think they were Gemini's and they didn't have any, I can't remember really. Like, honestly, it just had a play and and stop button. There was no, (laughs) nothing else. There was nothing else on the decks. It was literally just start the track. And then attempt to mix it into an. It was. They were little toy things. So I gathered all my law mm. friends, and I remember playing a set in, on my birthday. I think it was my twenty-first birthday, and everyone was sitting down with like mugs, and it was like as if, the pictures from that party looked like as if I was giving a lecture. 
How how relevant to you being a lawyer as well? Like a lawyer uh, yeah. DJ doing a lecture to her lawyer friends. So that was my first kind of like dabbling, but there was no one around because I wasn't in that world. So it was only when I moved to Canada eventually after um, finishing my, my law degree and my internship that I officially entered uh, the electronic music scene when I, I moved to, to Toronto. I was living with my sister. And yeah, I, I started DJing by entering into a competition. Oh, wow. Uh, in 2007. Yeah, to, to open for Paco Osuna, who was like an Italian techno DJ. Yeah, I sent in a mix submission. I, I still remember the mix. I don't know if I still have it. But I, oh I still God. stand behind some of the selections. Like they're not <laughs> selections... They're not selections that I distance myself from. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's funny because every now and then I listen back to my first ever mix. I remember when I made that mix, I was like, this is sick. Like, you're so impressive, like, Juba. Actually, I was DJ Chin (laughs) back then. When I first started, I was DJ Chin, which I hated as a name because it reminds me of a chin (laughs) on your face. And it's just a really lazy take on my name, Chinwear. Um, But I remember listening back and I was like, yeah, this is really cool. And every now and then I enjoy listening back because it's quite cute. Like, I made so many little mistakes, like tempo changes and like overlapping vocals and I'm like oh you tried <laughs> but I also stand by some of my old selections too there's something naive and wonderful yeah yeah exactly like that naivety you had when it was just you trying to express yourself without the worries of how people perceive you or like what you should be playing this could lead into exactly. um your first gig so after that submission was that your first ever gig or tell us about your first gig yeah so the submission was um to play at this really big club called Footwork so they had this guy, Paco Osuna, coming in. I sent in the submission. I won. And so I went up to play that evening. I was opening and I had my little controller and tractor. And I think about halfway into my set, my computer stopped reading uh, like the connection between the controller and the, the laptop. I was new and nervous. And so I did not have the, like, the capacity to troubleshoot. And I panicked. So my first gig was a disaster. No. I... <laughs> I know. It also leaves a scar. Like when your first gig sucks, <laughs> it leaves a scar. But so I, I my sister's uh, boyfriend, Nathan, was the one playing after me, kind of like, you know, uh, milling around the decks and was gracious enough to take over a little bit early. But, you know, I look back at it now and I find it very humorous and lovely. And, and it's, you know, it's like uh, 15 or 14 or 15 years ago. So it's part of my story. And I, and I, and I love it, regardless of, you know, how it made me feel at the time. You know what? I want to high five you massively on disastrous first gigs because I spoke about my first gig in my first podcast with Campere. Similar thing, like technology (laughs) let me down and I was just too new to understand how to troubleshoot. So I didn't get any of the BPMs or any of the like name codes of the tracks I was meant to be playing. And I freaked out and I just got really flustered. I cried. I couldn't play. I shouted at someone while I was DJing because they asked for a song and I was really frustrated. (laughs) Then my best friend told me off like it was a disaster. And then I ran behind the curtains and cried after my set. (laughs) So high five on those traumatic first gigs. But they honestly, they like, it's like they make you a stronger DJ because you know that you've experienced the worst. And you know that now you can't be thrown off by anything they experience. I think that and also they like form like a, a little bit of a narrative that I just carried with me. It wasn't particularly from like that first gig, but it's just, you know, how anxiety works where mm. you're just like your your brain can often like, you know, cling on to a negative experience and perpetuate it. You know, it's, you know, the brain is fun like that. <laughs> Learning to overcome them is how I, you know, eventually learn to also enjoy my craft 
regardless of potential outcomes. Failing at something is definitely part of the process. Mm. How long did it take you to overcome that anxiety or the negativity that you felt from your first gig? I think I've had like a, a, a decent um, collection of good and bad experiences. But for some reason, for a large chunk of time, I would always go to the worst case scenario. And, and sometimes I would question my, myself, like, why am I uh, doing something that gives me anxiety? You know, I love music. I love, you know, the idea of putting something together and sharing it. I love the idea of that being part of my day. But the anxiety attached to it was debilitating for a while. And so I think for a good five years, there was there was often a battle in my head about why am I doing this? So why did you stick at it? And how did you come out of that thought process anyway? I think part of the reason I was anxious was because I think when you get into something, you try to emulate what you think you should do to be part of that profession. So I think being really young, I was like my early 20s and now I'm close to my mid 30s. I was um, checking in with myself to see which picture do I want for myself? Like, how does this profession translate to my character? If you want to do something, you need to see how it fits with the way you flow. And I think for the first five years, I might have just like taken on too much. You know, the crew that I was with, they they maybe were able to do gigs every weekend. But I think I'm a sensitive person, so maybe I shouldn't do gigs every weekend. It's interesting because we um we do an advice section later on in the show, in the show, in a podcast. But I do think that in itself is really great advice. The idea of like finding yourself, working out what works for you and going with your own flow as opposed to trying to be in someone else's lane. So Zena, Zena, am I st- am I still saying your name right? Zena, 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 Zena. Okay, yeah, so Zena. Zena. Yeah, yeah. If I say it wrong, just like hit me across the laptop. So Zena, tell us about Egypt because you're from Egypt. You're in Cairo. I guess you're actually a very international person, but right now you're based in Egypt. And I know, obviously, ten years ago yeah. or roughly around ten years ago, we had the Arab Spring, which felt like a real defining social moment of upheaval and also hope in Egypt. And I guess that's uh, something that a lot of people look back to when they think about Egyptian society. But fast forward to 2021, what's the current status in Egypt? What's going on? What is society like over there? Well, apart from the fact that like uh, several people's hopes and dreams were crushed, (laughs) society right now is quite, everything kind of like happens in a microcosm. There's, you know, the ability to kind of like talk about society at large is a bit difficult. And all of us in general are not really in the business of, you know, speaking freely about all the details of, you know, the things that happen in Cairo. For the most part, it's a very like classist society. And so the 1% is quite separate from people who are like living below the poverty line. There's a very small middle class. And so it's a very interesting society because it's very hard to speak to the majority. I arrived to Egypt in 2014 or 15. And when I arrived, it seemed like out of the rubbles of the situation that there was like, I don't want to use the word budding, but there was a budding cultural and music scene. It seemed to be coming out of the desire to just kind of bust out after the Arab Spring, it's very difficult to talk about a place like Egypt um, in any way that's generalized because it's it's really the most intensely diverse, chaotic uh, city I've ever experienced in my life. And I'm Cairo for me is one of the cities that I feel like I'll never fully crack. 
it can get really, really heavy. I think for everybody, it can get very heavy. Um, and I think people's defense mechanisms are very obvious. Like Egyptians absolutely use humor and, and a kind of boisterousness to get by. I mean, the streets here are alive. And I, and I, I don't know if they're alive with joy or people are channeling a really big energy as a survival mechanism. And that's the thing. I feel like I see that energy replicated within all different types of, you know, all the layers. Society is so, so intensely layered and each layer is completely different from the other. And I'm very conflicted. I feel like I often feel like I experience a whole, the whole range of emotions when it comes to what I experience in the city, uh, whether it's um, like, like a joyfulness or a boisterousness that I interpret as something like positive. Sometimes that very same kind of like outburst for me contains so much oppression and sadness. And I feel like that emotion also translates to my experience with the club scene. And I think also after the Arab Spring, like uh, any sense of hope was kind of dashed and also the separateness also increased because our parents who crave, you know, stability and and all that like are completely antagonized from the the, the younger generation and so now there's even more layers to this completely layered experience. And sometimes it can feel isolating. I think living in such a huge city, it was such a moment of togetherness during the revolution. And it was very fleeting. So I think people find safety here within their own little bubbles. But sometimes the bubble can be very small and tight. And you feel like, okay, we've, done, we've created this for ourselves. But like, how much of it is our experience within the city? And I often think about that, like, I feel like I am experiencing Cairo, but I'm in such a small little bubble and I love it and I appreciate that I've built that for myself. But sometimes I wonder or I consider the separateness that I feel from the rest of society. And that's why and that's why I often consider, you know, the two emotions of like joy and sadness you know, within society and within the club scene feels, you know, I sense it a lot. Definitely. I think there is a correlation between countries where people are known to enjoy themselves and party a lot and be almost enjoy that escapism and sort of social situations because it is really a way of coping, a way of actually finding joy in life because you need to find some of it, you know. You can't live constantly aware of the oppression that's happening around you. Um, And I guess we, we kind of touched on it a bit. How does the social situation and the culture in Egypt impact the night or the music scene, the electronic scene, which you kind of touched on, but let's talk about that a bit more. I think sometimes people who would be coming from abroad would be shocked to come into a party in Cairo because sometimes it honestly feels like, you know, you're in Berlin or London. But I I still feel like I'm very like, what's the word? I'm very particular about the way I perceive things. And I think because of the pressure we feel in society, whether I honestly, whether it's like the constant noise pollution, whether it's the traffic, just kind of like, you know, the intensity that Cairo can give off. I think sometimes when I look at the scene, I see some joy, some release, but I also sense a lot of like excess and sadness. I just sense that people are still figuring out how to embody a sense of freedom within the party scene. Mm. But when you say that the party scene can look a bit like Berlin or somewhere in the USA, is that a good thing? Or do you think people spend too much time trying to emulate the outside or the Western world? Or do you think that's also quite authentic to Cairo? Like, How do you perceive that? Yeah, it's both. It's like, I feel like the scene has grown. Sometimes I feel like the scene is diverse. Sometimes I feel like it emulates, you know, a copycat kind of style. Sometimes I feel like it's authentic. It's actually quite 
fast moving. And so sometimes I'll go to a party and say, wow, like we've come a long way. This is a great party. This is a great vibe. And other times things feel a bit sterile. Also, like we have an issue with venues. We kind of like move around like very nomadic. That also kind of differs with the feeling. It being similar to Berlin or, 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 or abroad can be a good thing. But I also think that the crowd is also like Egyptians are very friendly, very accommodating. They want to make artists who come through feel good. Mm. And so I think the crowd, the crowd here is actually, you know, it, it, you know, the Egyptians are quite, quite a fun dance floor. So mm. I, I think that it's, it's a fun, it's a fun place to play. Sure. But um, one thing I find interesting is that I, I have a couple of friends who've played in um, places like Egypt and they say that there's a quite an underground culture because, I don't know, is it true that clubs aren't really allowed to be officially open and you need like DJ membership cards? Is is it seen as something that's almost like an, I don't know, like an excess that you're not really meant to do and it, therefore it drives it underground? Honestly, the DJ card thing is just like another way for them to collect a bit of money, I'm sure. But no, it's quite a profession that's widespread. Even like when you have traditional parties like henna parties, parties when women get married there are two women that come with a sound system and a playlist like <laughs> there's a there's a definite like the dj culture has really spread the liquor licenses are tied to old spaces so like you cannot really apply for a liquor license if the space you occupy doesn't already have an old liquor license so that's why sometimes uh, in order to serve alcohol it, some parties will have to be a little bit more on the down low um, and I think a lot of the reason as well that parties are quite on the on the down low is because we want to keep parties, you know, safe for women on the dance floor. There's a lot of initiatives around making, you know, this little bubble world that we live in feel, you know, safe and enjoyable. But for me, I've always had this feeling of like hesitation, like I want to be on a safe and 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 contained dance floor. But at the same time, I feel like, oh, you know, the cost of that is being doing really heavy door selection, which can sometimes be an annoying concept. You know what I mean? Mm. It's like you want it to be more free, but you understand in the context you're in, you have to be kind of careful to protect certain people. And I guess that also goes into my next question, actually, because I wanted to ask in particular, what is it like for um, women in the music scene, especially, you know, women in the clubs, in the spaces, as well as DJs as well? Yeah, I think in the last few years, there's definitely been more awareness about harassment, about safety. There's an initiative called um, We See You. It's like a, it's a pun on, you know, we see you, uh, predators. And also to oh. the women, like, <laughs> we see you, we've got your back. <laughs> we and, see uh, what you're doing and, yes. and we see you, yeah. Yeah. We'll see you, man. Um, and so that's just one of a few initiatives of, you know, being present at parties with volunteers, um, making things safer for women. And so, yeah, just the awareness has really increased uh, in the last few years. There's been a policy in place for a while now that men and women at parties have to be present uh, in particular ratios. Like two, three men cannot enter a club on their own. They have to be accompanied. Mm by um, an equal number of women, which I think, again, it's a bit stifling when you think about it as a concept, but I think somehow it's necessary to normalize safety on the dance floor. Mm. And I think, you know, it's a journey and we are still in the beginning uh, of educating people on what it feels like to be a woman in, in society on the dance floor. It's interesting because um, I keep on saying it's interesting. I need to stop saying that all the time. It's fascinating. <laughs> it is. Um, it's, it's poignant. It's it notable. <laughs> it's something. But no, um, that actually... 
It's yeah, fantastic. It, that happens actually in the UK though. I know that in a lot of clubs, boys have to be accompanied by a woman. Um, I don't hmm. know. I don't know how I feel about that. I get it because we call it a sausage fest when basically a club is full of men. Exactly. But you do have a tendency of having clubs that are full of men, and I do understand why they want to be there to be an equal ratio of men and women. But it can feel quite stifling. And then you get the situation where guys are in the queue asking if they can stand next to you and pretend that they're coming yeah. with you. And it's just a bit contrived. So, yeah, in an ideal world, everyone could just get in regardless of gender and it's all equal and fair. But unfortunately, we do live in a world where women do get harassed on the dance floors or women do get, you know, their drinks spiked a lot of the time. So I've always felt like Egypt changes like at a, at a snail's pace. And there's like a small and slow, steady budding awareness with regards to women's issues Everything from women's bodies, uh, women's rights. Uh, there's there's a page called Mother Being that like goes into the territory of sexual health and and and, and reproduction, and it's it's literally the ABCs. People understanding the basics of their body, um, also kind of like the basics of what uh, they can kind of expect from society as women. I feel like there's a lot of internalized misogyny within society, and it's very difficult because it's like we want to all align as women but we also have different levels of exposure to information. And so some women understand that they can get X and other women don't even strive for that because it's not even within their scope of thinking. So I feel like it's frustrating also to come together when society is so segregated, but there is a slow women's movement that's happening. It was triggered by pretty traumatic events that I also cannot really discuss. But this event where our safety as women was compromised was finally put uh, onto like a bigger stage where all of us were discussing it. The, that incident caused a lot of women to speak up, but the people who spoke up got arrested. The women who spoke up were getting arrested, but it still banded a lot of women together to start finally talking and pushing uh, for women's issues. So it's not about the wins, it's about the conversation being open. We, we've kind of discussed what you've alluded to, and I definitely, definitely um, think it's a traumatic situation. And I respect that it's not easy for you to be able to talk about these sorts of things because they're highly sensitive in your society. But I guess going back to the idea of women's safety being compromised and the right outcome or the, the right sort of punishments not being given, you know, recently um, in the UK, there was a whole situation around a woman called Sarah Everard who was murdered and kidnapped by a police officer and it's really caused a lot of conversations recently in a part of the world where people assume that we all know a lot about women's um women's rights and and safety it's really opened a lot of really uncomfortable yes. conversations about how women are so used to living with the risk of essentially misogyny which can actually end our lives so yeah no i i feel like it's literally the basic fact of people understanding what it feels like to be a woman in the world what it feels like to occupy this body, what it feels like to embody a kind of fear in the streets. Every day, women go through an experience that men are unaware of. And I think it's important, you know, like the education has to be on both sides, but it's, it's, it's a painful kind of like experience exposing every woman's trauma in order to get the point across. You know what I mean? It's not just mm. this like ABC it's like, no, please understand that we live with this. We have coping mechanisms for our safety on the streets, for our safety in clubs, for the way we are spoken to in the workplace. Like a woman's experience is so colored by her reaction to misogyny. It's just difficult to explain that, that we have all these inbuilt mechanisms that we don't even want 
because we live in a patriarchal society. We are literally, like, sometimes our defenses are our reaction to men. Like, we literally have parts of our personality that are there. Of course, yeah. It's fucked up. It's fucked up. Like, they don't, they, they don't, they don't go, they, they don't have, you know, inbuilt mechanisms to deal with women. They just deal how they deal. We are like, we have so many reactionary parts of our personality because mm-hmm. we live in a patriarchal society where we always have to be on guard in some way or another. So, yeah, it's, it's for me, it's also wanting to shed that, not wanting to feel fearful on the streets, not wanting to feel like I am, hmm, I'm, I'm, you know, at a weak, I'm at a physical disadvantage. All these things bother me on, on a daily basis. And I think in Egypt, our problems are exacerbated because, you know, there's such a big difference between, you know, there's privilege, there's people who get away with things because they're connected. And so there's a whole other layer to a woman's experience because there's not always going to be justice. I mean, in the UK with Sarah, there are there's going to be a, a kind of a unified public outrage, perhaps, I think. But here, there's a lot of people that can be apologists and are actually still perpetuating the same intense misogynistic ideas. So sometimes it does feel like maybe things are moving slowly, but then often it, it feels like it's just confined to a particular slice of society. Exactly. Imagine like you don't get men's self-defense classes, but you get women's self-defense yeah. classes. You yeah, know, you don't like get, that. you don't, yeah, you don't get, you, you get mansplaining, you get, uh, you know, pay gaps, you get, it's just, we are yeah, constantly exactly. fighting in every slice, in every way. And I think on a more basic level, we're, we're, we have an inbuilt fear of just existing, which is, you know, insane when you think about it. It's crazy to me that, you know, the idea that some things that like people like me and you might think are obvious, people still need to be told, you know, you can't just grab a woman in the dance floor. Or you can't just, you know, grab a woman in the street and actually, you know, I don't know, heckling a woman because of what she's wearing is not OK. And there's so many people who think yeah. it's just normal and cultures that normalise it as well. And I get the idea that mm. from what you said, there's certain things that you just can't talk about right now still. I know you mentioned when we had our first chat about, you know, LGBT issues and, and the controversy still around the rainbow flag and how these things are still mm. really highly sensitive in Egypt. Very much so, very much so. But I think, you know, if you choose to live here, uh, then, you know, you have to make certain choices with what you're going to, you know, kind of go for, what you're going to um, try to work on. And I think for me, recently, I've been thinking a lot about gender and identity and what femininity means. So this is something that interests me as a person. I think growing up and coming to Egypt every summer, I was very much startled by the very, very homogenous look of women. It's just very, very feminine. So I felt like, oh, if this is what femininity is, then I'm not part of this. But I think, you know, growing up and traveling and, and, and thinking about myself and how I identify, I think now coming back, it's like I'm reclaiming my femininity. And I think we need to create more faces of what something can look like. Mm. And I think this is what the battle in Egypt, there's always one of everything. Like, mm. oh, oh, this is your standard. This is a standard woman. This is what she looks like. She's feminine. She has good nails. She has long hair. And I, I think, yeah, it's interesting for me. Like, I'm out, uh, like, I'm out of the person who is androgynous. And sometimes I feel feminine and sometimes I feel masculine. And the fluidity of how I feel is the quote unquote statement that I'm making. And yeah, it makes me feel good when I see diversity in expression because that's really what we lack here. 
Mm. You know what? It strikes me as a place where there's just so much to explore and so much to unearth. And it's like the beginning of changes in societal thinking, which, you know, which will take their own form in Egypt and look in their own way. And it it can be quite exciting, quite daunting. But, you know, who knows mm. what the world will look like in 10 years time. And the idea of you not fitting into what you thought femininity was or what you were told and therefore you feeling a bit excluded from that, but then now reclaiming your femininity as your way of being feminine is also really interesting. And I think one of my other guests, we spoke about the idea of energies and feminine and masculine energies. And as someone who also very much embodies my masculine energy as well as my feminine, I, I'm always very critical of how how like restrictive we are when it comes to genders and performance and what we are meant to and not meant to do as women and men and you know absolutely absolutely I'm, i can totally relate um, to your experience and i think it's beautiful when you create more versions of gender i mean like yeah that's sort of like that's the little battle that i'm that i'm part of uh, mm. that's what feels like that's something i i want to put out and say i'm comfortable doing you know the funny thing is like i even just the other day I will get a man who's just, you know, quite a a, a, um, just a regular person. And he gets like, a, he was actually the guy who was delivering some plants to my house. He's like, oh, you, you, you're you pretty, but why don't you grow your hair? <laughs> <laughs> so it's very common to have people ask me why my hair is short. Sometimes I'm in the mood to get into it. And other times I'm just kind of like, just what Do I you like. you know what? Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it's really funny for me because I'm like, obviously being Nigerian in like a lot of West African countries. Let me say for that, at least West Africa, um, women cut their hair all the time, especially from um, a young age from school. And then as we get older, some grow their hair, some cut their hair. So actually, in a Nigerian sense, my femininity most likely wouldn't be questioned because of my hair, but it's often mm. questioned in like how I dress and how I behave. I remember I was complaining to my cousin because my cousins in Nigeria are really, really curvy. And I'm not that curvy. Mm. Like, I've, you know, I'm just normal. Mm. <laughs> and I was saying to them, I was like, oh, you guys are so curvy and I'm not curvy. And they're like, yeah, because you act like a boy. So because you act like a boy, you now have a body like a boy. <laughs> wow. Wow. Okay. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Okay, interesting. What's this mysticism? <laughs> <laughs> interesting way of looking at it. But and also, like, even living in Germany, it's so interesting here. Whenever it comes to winter, my gosh, I am called a man all the time. In the summer, it's kind of obvious. I'm wearing, like, tighter clothes and smaller clothes. But in the winter, it's like I have short hair and broad shoulders and my voice is probably a bit deep for your average German woman. And they always think I'm a man. And it's just so interesting. Like, what do you see when you see me? But we could talk about the whole, uh, how we define genders all day, to be honest. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, that's the thing that I miss. That's the thing I miss. Like, I, I really, like, when I I came to London many times when I was in Ireland for university, I used to hop over. And I was just fascinated by how many expressions of self there are. Mm. It's such a diverse city. It's beautiful. Mm. Um, there's so much diversity in London, I feel. Um, and also when I went to the States in San Francisco, man, it's wild. I can imagine. That's kind of the first culture shock that I got. That was like, because I used to consume American television as a, as a teen in the Middle East. So actually going to the States was, was really wild for me. And Mm. I feel like the good thing about the States, I mean, obviously we're always trashing the U.S. Yani, but uh, <laughs> I feel like there's this a very like individuality in the good sense of like express yourself. So it was very interesting being somewhere like San Francisco, mm. and to use a very nerdy word, I felt like I was in a nexus of like oppression. People were very much like yeah, creating things and making themselves, and I was intimidated, but also like mm. it, it stayed with me how much people embody 
what what they want. They're like their hobbies and their and, and their interests are so part of their identity and who they are. And and in Egypt, there's like a push towards sameness. You know, I think mm. probably it's like uh, I think probably it's a political thing. But you know, mm. another thing we can't get into. <laughs> yeah, no, but I think sameness is also it is a political thing. It's like individually sometimes sort of be subversive. And that can be a threat to the state, I guess. I think Berlin's an interesting one because it definitely is a place where there's a lot of self-expression and freedom. But I've always said that Berlin is a great place to express yourself and be free if you're like a a gay white man or a white man, even a white woman. But as a black woman living in Berlin, it's a very different story because there's a lot of scrutiny, Mm. a lot of observation, a lot of staring, a lot of interactions that can be very tiring because you stand out like a sore thumb. And especially as a black woman like myself, who I think I express myself quite a bit in my outfits and how I look, it can be very, very draining. Yes, I feel you. Berlin is not not particularly a utopia for all as it's kind of yeah, like you know it's, it, yeah you're right there's definitely. still a little bit of there's still there's still haven't the exposure they've had to different cultures is still quite minimal definitely i always say that it's like berlin is a great success in liberal and progressive marketing but the extent to which you experience that progressive nature is very very dependent upon you know your color your gender stuff like that you know what i feel like we spent so much time discussing the wider concept of womanhood and women's safety and placing in society that we haven't actually spoken about women behind the decks. But I definitely think listening to this conversation, listening to you speak, it's really eye-opening to me specifically. And I guess a lot of listeners definitely in the global north, as I call it, because I think a lot of time we take for granted how easily we are able to just criticise and talk about things in society. There's no topic that's too sensitive to really talk about when I you know, discuss like how to, how much I dislike our Tory government in the UK or whatever happens in society in Germany. So yeah, um, I think definitely that freedom to criticise and be blunt about the state is something I take for granted. And yeah, so listening to this conversation and the amount of times you've been like, oh, we can't really discuss this or this is kind of, can't go into it too deeply. It's, it's really eye-opening. But that said, uh, back to female DJs. So yeah, uh, tell us tell us what it is like for yeah women in your scene. Go ahead. I think the the state of the DJ culture with regards to women has improved a little bit. I can definitely see more diversity. The women that are playing, I feel like they have so much character uh, within their style. There's Contessa. She plays sort of electronics with Maharaganat. There's Malak Helmi. She also sort of plays a very heady kind of mix of things. Myself, and, and there's a bunch of other female DJs occupying very interesting spaces. And it's kind of my favorite thing because it's really f- like filled with so much personality. When I first arrived, I remember it, like my presence in the club was a novelty. I used to get such strange comments. I remember one guy came up to me once when I was playing and asked me when the DJ was coming. And I think we definitely ahead of that kind of moment. I I can't imagine that moment happening now because we have made a bit of headway. But yeah, I remember when I started Unfamiliar and when I was building things, there were definitely less women in the scene. And yeah, for me, it's wonderful not to be a novelty. Um, And with the work that I'm trying to do with Future Female Sounds, sort of trying to get more women in the field so we don't have to keep 
talking about women in music. Yeah, definitely. I think that's the operative idea, really, that women DJing in 2021 really should not be a novelty in any part of the world, regardless of the social situation. So honestly, I think it's so cool what you've been doing with Unfamiliar Sound. It's also just great to hear about all the women who are out there sharing their sounds and sharing their creativity and essentially combating what you experienced when you first moved back to Egypt. This podcast is sponsored by Adidas and Zalando as part of their Share Her Power campaign, encouraging camaraderie over competition amidst women. It's all about women uplifting women. So Zena, in the spirit of women empowering women and just sharing the spirit of support, what advice would you give to a woman who wants to DJ, who wants to produce in your region? Yeah, okay. It's a bit generic, my advice, but it's deeper, deeper than it sounds. I think mm. like, from my experience, sometimes you people inadvertently copy something that looks appealing, but ultimately life is about the process of what you do. So I think thinking about how music could fit into your day, how music could fit into your life and making it personal is really like the most fun way of enjoying music. I I think for me, I was very goal oriented when I started. It's like, oh, I got this gig. It was like more about putting like marks on my calendar, which in the end for me is a little ridiculous because you missed the whole point. So I think I've also shifted my perspective as a person in regards to life, just like feeling moments in my day as opposed to looking forward to things all the time. So it's like make music personal, make music and how you see how DJing or production could fit into your life. Either like feel and embody the steps and make it personal to your life. I mean, I think another thing, like another piece of advice or another thing that I found to be true is um, indulging in your guilty pleasures and playing them out. I think often when we have like our arsenal of like cheesy tracks or maybe things that we listen to at home, I feel like those tracks also have a place in someone's set. I often feel like those are the, the tracks that create moments And those are the things that sort of like form someone's style or personality. I think for me, the best thing is when I go out and I feel like I can hear someone's personality uh, through their music. And so I always encourage people to play something that they would consider quote unquote cheesy or like a guilty pleasure. That's really cool because that's a very specific, like play your cheesy music, which I like. I like stuff like that because it's really easy to say, you know, be true to yourself and don't let the haters get you down and practice a lot but no one thing that Zena is saying is play your cheesy songs <laughs> play those cheesy indie tracks from when you're 15 years old that you love because you never know who will really enjoy that in the crowd as well so exactly I really and maybe cool. you can find a way to yeah and maybe you'll find a way to mix it that will be a super interesting mix like honestly like when I first started DJing my crew we were like the minimal purest minimal only and I love that because like I really got into the the, the kind of deeper shades of electronic music, very stripped down. But I think it also kind of like prevented me from accessing the cheesier parts of my my soul. And I think recently I've really enjoyed, you know, throwing in some of my R&B songs that I listen to. For me, I'm finally free of the shackles that I placed on myself of what it is to be a DJ. And now I'm finally just throwing everything into the pot. You know what? When I play the Kooks Naive or like, I don't know, Red Hot Chili Peppers in my next DJ set and mix it into some Afrobeats track, I'm going to blame you if everyone hates me because I'm going to take that advice now. (laughs) 
a dude with confidence, it will resonate. Yes, yes. Yes, that's yes, it. Yes, absolutely. That's probably one of my uh, favorite pieces of advice because it's just so um, particular and so ridiculous in a way. Play your cheesy songs. You know, sometimes DJ culture can be like too cool for itself and it gets a bit annoying. So sometimes I'm just like, okay, let's stop being up our own. Let's stop being a bit too much. Obviously, you have your unfamiliar project or night where you prioritize women behind the decks and you just want to create space for them. Because you said that I saw in an interview that when you moved to Cairo, there weren't any women's initiatives in music and DJing. So hopefully there are more now. And I'd like you to maybe shout out some of the crews or people or initiatives that are doing stuff to help women in music in Cairo or Egypt or the world. I think one of the nice things to come out of the last year was a collaboration with Future Female Sounds. For me, like I often take DJing in a very kind of like solo strict way, you know, music hunting, going to gigs, being prepared. It, it can also, it, it can feel very, very much like a solo kind of endeavor. So for me to connect with Tia from Future Female Sounds, to kind of like discover, you know, a DJ school in Denmark doing the same thing that I'm trying to do here on a smaller scale. So we connected, there's a Cairo chapter that we did in collaboration with the Danish, Danish Institute. So that was super lovely. We did a first round where we had nine female DJs that sort of like performed after we finished the workshop, which was like three intensive days. We're also doing like a follow-up workshop with the same girls to kind of see where their skills are at. So, you know, sometimes when they're, they're like, so when there's an, like an absence of something, or we're not able to play gigs. It's been nice to kind of reroute my energy into like a more educating and like passing it on and I think for me like the joy comes from like you know when one person gets excited about playing then they throw up an event and I think when we did did the course with nine women that's like you know when you think about it it could be such an exponential growth of female DJs which would be ultimately the goal exponential growth I like that yeah nice well shout out to these organizations and we're gonna obviously um, mention them when this podcast is out and it's really good to see yeah the exponential growth of initiatives to help women in music, where it's what we it's what we want. Absolutely. So Zena, we are coming to the end of the podcast. I've obviously enjoyed talking to you. I feel like we have a lot of things in common in a way, even though we have had very different lives, like sort of thought processes, which is cool. But obviously, you don't always have to think the same as someone to get on with them. <laughs> but um, can you share, looking back on your career, can you share that no moment you had when you doubted your decision to DJ? Yeah, I could like five years of no. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. A chunk of no. A chunk of no because, yeah, again, like I, I hung on for particular reasons. It wasn't all dark, absolutely. But I think reinventing, like I, I basically was in Toronto for three years or two years. Things felt heavy. Things didn't feel natural had a lot of anxiety attached to the process. And then I said to myself, nah, this is not for me. I love music, but I'll find other ways of sharing it. Left Toronto, went to Montreal, got the tickle again, and reinvented how I approached it. And turned that no into a yes. I mean, yeah, really, I had left it behind and then got that tickle and just felt like it's not DJing. It's me and my approach. And, and, you know, adjusting how I approached it made all the difference. Mm, okay. So in a way, your no moment was like a, it was like a no period in a way, like a five year period when you were questioning what you're doing. But do you have a yes moment or period when you actually realized that you'd made the right decision of becoming a DJ? Every day is a yes moment. 
honestly, like I've reached a place in my life where I feel like all the building blocks of how I want my day to be are so in tune with who I am. It took me so long to get here. I have my little side hustle to, you know, make money. I have DJing, which isn't like pressured with money. Not something I'm doing to make money. Obviously, the pandemic would have killed that. And so the way music fits into my life has really, it brings me joy. It's nice when you can look back and think, okay, the life I've curated for myself, the things that I'm doing genuinely make me happy. Because I think we're so used to having angst and discontent in how we live in and thinking that something isn't right or something shouldn't be right. But actually, sometimes everything can be right. And it's, uh, it's nice, I guess. Mm, takes time. Yeah, exactly. I think the right word is curate. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it takes a lot of time to paint things the way you want. And I struggled for a long time, whether it was financially or whether it was like, because I've been working for myself in various ways for a good decade. And sometimes you doubt yourself. You, know, you see people with nine to five. Okay, they're just, there's a discontent there, but there's a paycheck and the security. So sometimes that was like doubting, okay, like I need to stick to the path that I chose. And, and, and finally, I feel, I feel grateful for mm. how it's panned out. And I get what you mean about sometimes doubting and like looking at the nine to five world and thinking, why am I doing this? Because, you know, I love DJing and I love music. It's, it was a really random career choice for me anyway, because I genuinely, I did history at university and Spanish and I wanted to be a <laughs> journalist. And, you know, I come from a very academic family and a very professional family. And as someone who likes to use their brain a lot as well, DJing isn't necessarily always the most cerebral or intelligently perceived career. So there have been times when I'm like, hmm, you know, is this the right thing for like a university graduate to be doing or blah, blah. But no, it's like, first of all, everything you do hasn't got to be academic. And also there's ways that you can incorporate the different sides of yourself into something like DJing or, you know, playing the piano or whatever it is. So, yeah, it's all good. It's all good. But those demons yeah, so are this there. Goes back to what, this, this goes back to the you, what you were saying of like, you know, if, if, if you feel like you're more of an intellectual person and you love music, then there are ways to kind of tickle both parts of your brain. And I think that's what I've been doing recently that has really fulfilled me. Because mm. when I just go into the whole DJ lane, full throttle, I feel like something is missing. And mm. so it's about also balancing the way, you know, and giving my brain satisfaction by also doing work on the side that fulfills my more academic side. So I'm to I can totally relate to, to yeah. how you feel. And I guess the beauty of life is that you can create different lanes for yourself and you can curate and curate you know how you want to live this life and how you want to enjoy your talents and your capabilities and we should yes. box ourselves in yes. so yeah definitely you know funny enough I was um, did, I uh <laughs> I read an interview on you before we started and there was this a bit where you said when you moved to Cairo you were DJing and some guy gave you 200 pounds because he was so impressed by your debt but then they gave him his money back <laughs> Oh, the, oh! Did I say that I wanted that cash, right? <laughs> I mean, I would have. I was like, "Girl, give me the cash, then <laughs> I take it." <laughs> it, it. It flew. It flew and landed into the mixer. I remember, and I had to. It was an after-hours gig, and it was literally a sausage fest. Yeah. And there was a guy. He threw two hundred, but it wasn't two hundred British pounds. It was two hundred Egyptian pounds. It was like ten, okay. 10 pounds or something. Okay. You know, very I little money. I still take it, but but. but uh, I still take it. I know I wanted to take it, but I feel like my friends would have judged me. So I pretended that I was offended. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, that's a quarter of a manicure, my friend. I would take that. That's so funny. Yeah. So you have to pretend you didn't want it. I was going it. on a small vacation, yeah. <laughs> I know. 
Yeah, they were like, oh my like, god, this is so rude. She's not a stripper. That's and I so was like, funny. um, give me that cash. That's, I would have snuck it in my bra real quick before anyone even noticed. Once yeah. again, bring it back to like Nigerian culture. It's funny because in Nigeria, um, a lot of the time spraying money on someone is a, is a sign of appreciation. So when you go to like weddings and parties and stuff like that, when like, especially not only women actually, men as well, when people are dancing, especially at weddings and stuff, people put money on them because it's like appreciation, it's blessings, it's like wealth and prosperity. So if someone threw money at me, I would take that i remember mm. i was in nyege nyege in um in uganda and someone really enjoyed my set and they threw some money at me and my friend next to me kept the money for me so <laughs> that's so funny I no you're that. like oh perfect <laughs> i know oh that's I, so funny i i would have i would have i would have taken the i would have taken the cash <laughs> if no one was around you should have gone out to him after and been like excuse me can i have the money back <laughs> yeah exactly or something like that so, Zena, we are now at the last bit of the show, as a podcast, unfortunately. I'm going to have to let you go soon. But before you go, a parting gift for us. So can you share a message that you've received um, that really inspired or uplifted you or made you feel like, you know, gave you that warm feeling in your stomach, like you're doing the right thing? Uh, sure, absolutely. There, uh, let me hear. So recently, I was, you know, really what's giving me joy is like passing on some skills and just getting other women excited about DJing. So after we ran the workshop, I received a message from one of the participants. It's a bit long, but I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll read you a little slice of it. It's like, I'm writing to thank you for the amazing experience, for the time and energy that you took out of your busy schedule to help the workshop together and guide us female DJs looking to enter the industry in Egypt. The environment overall was so warm and supportive, and I felt I left feeling excited and empowered. Your insight was so valuable. Your energy combined with Pia was so infectious. It left me feeling so excited about my journey. Beyond the new tips and skills I learned, I also connected with lots of amazing women that I wouldn't have otherwise been able to cross paths with. You inspired me and gave me the confidence boost I needed to clarify my vision. Thank you for everything. I hope we can stay in touch. Feel free to explore my SoundCloud. I'm excited for my journey so much more because of you, and I'll definitely be reaching out to you once I've worked on perfecting my craft. Oh, that's so... How yeah. did you feel when you read that? I just felt like... Yes, this is this is this is exactly what we want, and I, I I I'm such a believer in that. Like, there's space for everybody. I'm not this person that it's like, oh, elbow your way to the top. Like, honestly, the top has a lot of space. You know, create opportunities are created all the time. If something isn't there for you, you'll get the next round. And so for me, more is more. So when I read about you know her and her DJ journey, I was so excited, so happy that like whatever we tried to translate, like it, like the message was clearly uh, felt. So mm. yeah, I still feel like great about that message. That's a really nice message. It just shows that you're like you know, it just shows the power to change lives and how these little things can actually make a big difference. How someone feels about themselves and their journey and their choices in life. So. It's really cool, and I, I I would love to get a message like that. So if anyone wants to send me a message, no, but honestly, it's um, yeah. it's really nice. <laughs> but like women, women can really create a great environment for one another. Like when we mm-hmm. got to the last day of the workshop, it was like we like that sisterhood that you can create from spending time together with women. We had so much fun, and like in the beginning, everyone was really shy, but towards the end, you know, it was it was really sweet. Like I think, yeah, when we get together, we know how to make. You know, we know how to create warmth with one another. And I, and I love that about, you know, gatherings of women. It's one of my favorite things is when we, mm. you know, come together because it's such a power in that. And, um, yeah. Well, there definitely is something powerful in sisterhoods. And just 
women coming together and supporting each other, empowering each other and just, you know, looking out for each other as well in this world. Definitely. Yes, 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 yes. I agree. I always love ending the podcast with these questions because it means that we always leave the podcast on a really positive note. And it just gives me a spring in my step, you know, thinking about all the nice communities and, and connections that are being made around the world, trying to, I guess, address certain certain problems in the world you know yes absolutely it's it's yet the sisterhood is something to be joyful about and we and we need it indeed but on that note i'm gonna say goodbye to this sisterhood we have right here (laughs) it's time to go we've come to the end it's been a beautiful sisterhood and zena 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 yes 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 you got it i swear you got it (laughs) (laughs) zena we have come to the end and it's been really great talking to you thank you so much and uh look after yourself I hope that you continue feeling that sense of joy and just equilibrium and contentment that you have right now because it's a really nice thing to cherish, to be honest. Thank you so much. Yes, yes, yes. I'm, 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 I'm holding on to it and I'm, I'm, I'm happy to pass it on. And I'm grateful for our chat. It was wonderful. Thank you. And goodbye. So this has been The Assurance Podcast, a follow-up to my documentary that explored the experiences of female DJs in Nigeria. Assurance, the documentary, focused on women in Lagos' music scene, but overall, Assurance is all about spotlighting voices away from the European and North American club scenes, which tend to dominate in conversations around gender and representation in music. And helping me share this empowering conversation has been Adidas and Zalando, who sponsored this podcast as part of their Share Her Power campaign.